This episode of InsureTech Insider is proudly brought to you by Deloitte. They are focused on uniting the bright ideas from InsureTech with large-scale traditional carriers and everything in between, bringing, of course, their wealth of industry experience and technology know-how into the mix, helping to drive the pace of change and transform insurance as we know it. Welcome to InsureTech Insider, coming to you live from the 11FS offices in WeWork, Devonshire Square. I'm Sarah Kachansky from 11FS, and on today's show, we are joined by Helen Stenway of AXA XL. We're going to be talking about the recent merger between AXA and the XL Group and the new division's digital initiatives. Um, to provide an insider perspective on the subject, we're joined by Helen. How are you today? I'm very good, and I'm very pleased I missed the rain coming over here, so that's a quick win for me. <laughs> Warm and dry. Yes. Um, and I'm also joined by Nigel Walsh. How are you today, Nigel? I am fantastic. Raring to go. New year, new you. New year, new me, new health kick, and the travelling hasn't started just yet, but give me three hours, I'll be on a plane. Nice. I'm already four flights down, so. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Without further ado, let's get on with the show. So, um, Helen, could you start by giving us an overview of AXA XL and what your role is there, what you do on a day-to-day basis? So let me let me go back in history a little bit first, because I think that's quite um, important in terms of how I've come to be in the role that I'm in. So I came from Excel way back when, and actually I've nearly done 20 years, which is, I don't know if that's scary or good or quite impressive. very impressive, <laughs> I would say, yeah. Um, but I've done obviously lots of roles in that time. Um, but I used to lead operations from a global perspective for one of the Excel divisions. So lots of stuff around offshoring, optimizing process and all the rest of it. And when Excel and Catling came together, there was a very different model in how operations were set up. And it was much more regional rather than global. So I like to say at this point I was displaced because it was just a different way of operating. And it's almost that who moved my job conversation. Yes, not who moved my cheese, who moved my <laughs> job, yeah. Um, so at that point, you know, there were lots and lots of options open and the organisation was coming together, etc. And I ended up becoming chief of staff to the global head of operations, which was great because I got to get involved in lots of different types of projects. And one of those was tech trends. And I have to say at the time, I was like, oh my God, that is really scary. That is the biggest topic out there of which I didn't have a background. That having been said, if you don't have a background, you think, okay, I'm going I'm to go for this and I'm going to learn and I'm going to research, I did lots of reading and all the rest of it. And that then actually morphed into uh, a full-time role. And it, what was great, it wasn't just reading and researching. I got to do some stuff, which, was, which is much more in my DNA. So the fact that organisations come together and the fact that organisations merge it gives people opportunity and you get different perspectives and different scale on how you might look at problems and solving things. But because I've come from a business and looking at technology, it gives me a completely different way of looking at things and being much more business focused when we look at tech trends. So you actually have both both perspectives on it because often we find we, when we talk about even um, insure tech startups, actually you get people who are very good at technology and people who are very good at insurance, and actually right. where the startup struggle is finding you know people who are good at both of those put it together. But it sounds like that's what your background helps you excel at is yes. both of those things. Yes, because I think people can get quite carried away with innovation, and 
all these wonderful ideas, but it has to be grounded in reality. So I often say it's not necessarily about the idea, whilst that's a good way to think about it, is what is the problem you're trying to solve? And I know that might be a cliche, but it actually works. It also makes it much more human and connected to somebody when you say, okay, there's a problem, we're going to try and find a solution for it, rather than there's an idea and, oh my God, I don't know how to get there and what do I do? And it's more abstract when you talk about an idea versus a problem. And dare I say, in our sorts of organisations, ideas are plentiful, but actually execution is really hard. And I think it's true for many of the big organisations, whether it's a bank, an insurance company or whatever else, actually getting stuff done is just difficult. Yes. Yeah. And you add that lens of uncertainty. And I don't just mean um, uncertainty in in, in any context, but specifically, you don't necessarily know what the outcome is going to be when you start some of this stuff. So you actually have to be comfortable with not knowing the answer going in. And but you know that there's a problem out there and you know you need to fix it. So it gives you some direction versus a more abstract idea. And how does that manifest in kind of so what you're you're leading or driving on a day-to-day basis? So you're solving problems, but what, what sort of a problem are we talking about? And, you know, what, which areas of the business and, and all that sort of thing? Is it everywhere and everything? Is that the answer? <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> um, but actually, I, I think one of the reasons why we've been successful in what we've done is we've taken a people angle. So if you think about what problems are there out there to solve, what ideas, there's loads of them. But you mentioned it, Nigel, there, it's about execution. So I went after the people that I knew would execute and would be comfortable with uncertainty and would help us figure it out along the way. So you could you could articulate problems to say, right, this is the biggest line of business we've got. This is the largest territory. This is the biggest volume. So that's what we should go after. But if the people in those units don't have the right mindset, it's like pushing water uphill. I mean, you can do it, but actually it's it's better and faster, which is obviously a big part of innovation, to go after kind of that early adopter mindset, those people that are going to queue for the iPhone overnight before it comes out, because they know that when they get their iPhone, for example, stuff might not work first time around, and they're okay with that, and they're willing to then find a solution to that problem, they'll down an update or find a different way of, of manoeuvring. So it's about the people. It's just pe- people who get it. I, I, and it's a hard one to sometimes put your put a framework or something around or a label around. But I just say people who get it. And we sat in sessions before with underwriters of similar experience and whatever else. And one might be in one line of business, one another. One just goes, wow, this is awesome. And they go, how can we start? And the other one goes, I don't get it. So it is down to the, you can clearly articulate the problem, how you're going to address it, and all the things you go through. But it's down to the, they've twigged, they've got it, they've got the thing in their mind and they work out then how it then can apply to their business, number one. And number two, what they need to do to make it come true. Yeah. And they'll make the time for it, right? Because you hear a lot, oh, I haven't got time and every other challenge, you know, Mm -hmm. they're cliches for a reason, right? Um, But yeah, those are the people that are willing to spend that extra time, figure out a solution because they know ultimately it's going to make it better for themselves in the long run. And so, so... short answer is it's about the people um and as a result of that we've actually done some really exciting and interesting things so we've done some work in artificial intelligence and we went to press with that uh, last week we did the world's first insurance 
blockchain, which is super exciting, middle of uh, last year. Can we extend the podcast for about an hour? So forget Helen on this, it's going to be a while. <laughs> we, are, we are going to talk about that slightly later on in the show. But, um, okay. but, but yeah, sorry, please continue. Um, and then the one that um, at the moment I'm sort of the most excited about is some IoT work that we're doing with a, a startup looking at how we can put sensors in cargoes as we transport stuff around the world, which is a huge industry problem. Yeah. Um, and so it's fantastic to be there trying to solve that problem. So I go back again to, we're trying to solve a problem. So just, just to take it back a step, so we will come on to some of the most exciting things you're working on, but um, we talked there about, you know, the importance, you know, your history and your background, and you've moved, you know, you've been been through one merger and I've been through a second. Um, you know, this, this merger between AXA and the XL group was like, was was huge, huge news in the insurance industry. In fact, I um, read it described as a mega merger <laughs> in one article. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to sort of get your view on either what it means for for the industry to see these two big groups coming together, and then maybe you know what does it actually mean for you with you know the the brief that you had and and, and moving into you know another sort of whole new world. So I think there are lots of people who are working very, very hard on bringing those two organisations together. So in terms of uh, AXA and XL Catlin coming together, you know, there are lots and lots of people who are working very, very hard to bring those two organisations together. And there are some very, very good reasons why we brought those organisations together. And it's very much out there in the press around, you know, even the views on innovation, why we needed scale in certain territories and all the different uh, elements that both organisations brought together. But actually, what's been really great, not least from a personal perspective, because I get to speak French a bit more, which is which is a great great thing. Um, a skill we want to keep up. It's one of those skills you have absolutely. to keep doing. You forget it, don't you? Yeah. Don't mention the B word. Let's leave it there. <laughs> um, but you know, working, just starting to work day to day, and meeting new colleagues. Whilst you see the press and the external perspective, the internal perspective, you know, some of the things I personally see are like-minded people and actually when they say oh the cultures are very same very similar actually my experience thus far is yes that's the case and we've been able to have really good and open conversations on topics that we've come at either from the same angle from a slightly different angle and actually we're just learning from each other Um, and obviously I can only talk from the innovation perspective um, and it's very early days because of course you know from a corporate perspective there's still a lot of hard work a lot of uh, legal regulatory work that but it goes back going to the point you were saying there about the people actually so you found within within your department as it were like-minded people and that's always I guess that's always one of the worries when you merge is it oh, well, am I going to get on with these people and I have to sit next to day in day out and are we going to be able to you know have work together and produce good results and it sounds like in your team that's that's definitely happening already yeah, so certainly reaching out to the other innovation groups. Um, we're not working together as yet. We're just fact-finding and learning. And, you know, they've done some fantastic things. I'd like to think we've done some fantastic things. So there's some really complementary activity there um, that actually bringing it together can enable us to have a bigger scale. Um, and some of the things that we're investigating are thinking about bringing together multiple solutions to solve a problem. So... We've got some really good examples where if one organization tried to tackle something, they probably couldn't get very far or couldn't really solve a complex problem. But actually, when you bring together multiple groups and multiple perspectives, it starts to be able to solve a problem that, as I say, no one can on their own. And when we're starting to look at all the different acts of divisions, divisions, I can start seeing that happening where you've got, say, different 
parts of an ecosystem coming together. Has it increased the velocity or uh, of things getting done or is it making it more complicated, do you think? I haven't seen any increase in velocity from, from an innovation perspective because yeah. it's literally just learning what each other is doing. I can absolutely see that happening in the future, though. Um, we went to visit one of the teams last week, which is absolutely fantastic. Um, and there are there are definitely complementary things that we've done. So say, for example, there are 10 steps in a particular process. We may have done an innovation that solved maybe steps two or three. They, in, in conversations, may have step, done four or five. So mm. actually, when you can plug those two things together, ultimately, you then solve a bigger problem and faster and probably with more scale and more volume. Well, that so. all comes back to the comment earlier about people and then communications, really. If we're, if we're all speaking to each other and we can break that down at the outset and go, let's pick up this and, and almost share the workload, then it makes life much easier for everyone. Yeah. And, and whilst I joke about the French language, actually, there was a common innovation language. So it, it was very, very rapid in terms of even trying to get to the innovations that we'd done. So yeah. we knew what an MVP was. We know what a POC was. You didn't have to start explaining those yeah. basic <laughs> terminologies. You we were there. a glossary for them. <laughs> right, right, right. So it, that was great from a, from a you know, mindset and, and working together point of view. So, so one of the things that, I mean, you mentioned there um, the fact that AXA has several different innovation divisions, and I imagine that Excel Catlin had several different innovation divisions as well. Yes. How do you, you know, I, I guess my question there is, how do you ensure that you're working towards a common goal and that all of those divisions are being, so, so as you said, you know, you've got scale and resource and, and volume there, but how do you make sure that you're all heading in the same direction and you're not just a bunch of, I want to say, I want to say headless chickens, but you're all cats that need to be herded do you know what I mean to make the most of everything you have to sort of ensure that there's a commonality of direction I suppose um, I'd, I'd say yes and no actually okay. to that so I think from a group perspective there's a very very strong payer to partner strategy which when you look at activity makes it easier to direct your energy and your focus to, to deliver on that objective but actually I think an element of chaos in an organization as regards innovation is a good thing you know, the other person who said that to me was a gentleman from the FCA who oh, said really? the element of chaos is always is a good thing. So um, not the first person to have said it, but I actually, I quite like the idea. I mean, from an Excel perspective, uh, previous chief exec, Mike McGavick, was very, very comfortable with chaos. And he would like that level of activity within the different business groups because not everything is going to succeed. And actually, if you have maybe a few people doing or working on the same problem, hopefully something's going to bubble up and one of those things will succeed. Because there's a point with innovation, you have to have a wide net and let things cogitate and bubble because, as I say, not everything will succeed. So it just gives you a better chance. That's quite an unusual approach in the insurance industry generally. If you look at the market overall, people have got dedicated programs, dedicated resources. They've planned the wazoo out of it to make sure it doesn't fail and they've given it enough chance to PowerPoint it to death or whatever else they want to go and do. But actually the approach you guys are taking is really interesting. So, I mean, just just to sort of move on from there, sort of what you've already discussed and um, is, is what are some of the things that you have you have done that you, you, I mean, you personally have worked on, but also maybe the wider group? I mean, um, is it's InsureWave, is that the correct? Yeah. Is that what it's called? Okay, so, yeah. yeah. So the world's first insurance blockchain. Um, and I think it brings together some of the elements actually I've, I've previously talked about. So we had eight people or eight different groups of people who helped execute on InsureWave. From different organizations. Different organizations. So we had a client at the center, which made the conversations to execute 
much easier when you say, right, there's a client in the center and, and they're demanding that we look at blockchain and, and, and experiment in this way. We had the broker, so Willis Towers Watson, and then we had um, XL Catlin as was, so now AXA XL, and then we had MS Amlin. So that was the insurance value chain. And then the partners we had were EY, uh, Gartime, who are the organization that do the, the actual blockchain. Um, Microsoft. We had Microsoft as your, yeah, you know this better than I do. <laughs> <laughs> He's been reading, the, pre- reading the press release. <laughs> yeah, and Accord. So only by bringing those groups together could we have achieved this. Um, and it was quite, I guess, from a market perspective, I'm guessing it was a little bit shocking because you actually had competitors working together to a common goal. And what does it what does it do? Can you give us an overview of kind of the what the platform, you know, what problems it solves? Great. <laughs> so... Blockchain is really, really suitable for highly transactional, highly complex risks. So we worked with Maersk. I don't think you could get more complex, yeah. more transactional <laughs> yep. than or bigger. that. Or bigger, yeah. right? Um, so it's a hugely complex way of doing business where you have lots of information, lots of data flowing back and forth and sporadic because there's no common way of sharing that data. What blockchain solved was it enabled us to have one common view of the data that is updated near real time. So number one, it changes the dynamic and relationship that you have with the client. So you're not just talking about the set of data that Maersk might prepare to buy their insurance at, you know, at the beginning of, of the policy period, say. You, they made the effort to put all of their data in the blockchain it updates regularly, and therefore, from a client perspective, you no longer have to create an insurance submission because your data is already there and it's up to date. So it has multiple client benefits and then insurer benefits, broker benefits. You've got a common set of data and you don't, wait for this, you don't have to reconcile data anymore. Good God. <laughs> yeah. So all of that, what they call friction, yeah. goes away. And in shipping, I guess, you have the extra... Um, the, the, the problem of time because you have something that starts here and doesn't finish there till eight months later and in between you've kind of the data's changed but if it's constantly updating in real time you're constantly seeing positions yeah. and, and it, that solves yet another problem well and, and the other is the date you talked about data there so in a traditional way of underwriting hull we probably get say 10 data points per vessel we're upwards of 30 data points per vessel including gps positioning so we can now see where the vessel is at any given time. And is this where does IoT feed into this same platform that yes. you were talking about? Yeah, because yes. that sounds to me an ob- not an obvious next step, but an, a nice next step. Yeah, so we combined blockchain and IoT in one application. So you've got a data platform with all your data points, including real-time, near-real-time positioning. And then what we've done is we've overlaid a smart contract. So this is my, my little favorite story here. So... Within Hull Insurance, you obviously have areas of the world that are more or less risky, so war zones. And what we can do is we can visually show that on a screen of what that, where that war zone is, and it, it doesn't remain static. This does morph over time. And then we can, put, we can put where the vessel is on that map. So if you think about it, you can then say, okay, hold on a minute, the vessel is coming up to a war zone, a red area on the map. And the captain of that vessel can say, huh, looks like I'm going into a more risky area. I'm not quite sure about this but can make a decision to say either, okay, I'm going to be willing to accept that risk and you know exactly when they go in and out of that war zone or they can go around the war zone. Okay, it might take more time and it might uh, have more fuel uh, impact, 
but they've got that ability to make that decision between time and risk. Or the risk of piracy goes down, therefore you can make... But that's back to humans in the loop. Is there no way... I mean, it's a silly question. There must be a way to go, we'll automate this whole process and put the guardrails in place and say, actually, this level of risk is acceptable. Anything else above and beyond that, we've either got to go back to broker or go back to shipping carrier or whatever else. Because the consequences of the cargo you have on board, whether it's fresh or whatever else, may have a, um, a various different impacts, right? And, and that's exactly what we're learning, right? So we start off with this premise of smart contract where you've got automated uh, transactions in terms of war zones and premium and risk. And then you can think about what do you then do with that data? What do you learn from that data? And then what decisions can you make off the back of it? So yeah, it's all down to data and decisions and giving more insights to that human being but some of that's done through the smart contract in terms of those guardrails you talked about. But some of it's putting the power back into the hands of the human, actually, yeah. because they've got so much more information. And, and presumably as well with the IoT sensors, if you have got a cargo that um, could spoil or have to be kept at a certain temperature or you know any of those things, presumably those sensors can flag early temperature's gone wrong or something. Is, is, does it work like that as well? So, so this one was GPS on the hull. Okay. Cargo IoT is a slightly different thing so we are doing a proof of concept at the moment with an organization called parcel okay where we are looking to experiment with sensors within cargoes now there's a level of complexity here so how do you get the sensors in the cargo in the first place the cost of the sensors the size of the sensors and at the moment the cost and the size is too prohibitive to have it connected real time so the sensors we have at the moment connect to phone masts. There aren't any phone masts in the middle <laughs> of the sea. Yeah. So you can okay. see where this is going. Yeah. Um, so what we are doing is looking at quality, quality of transportation. So if you talk to Ben Hubbard, the chief exec of Parcel, he, he has this lovely phrase called ship and prey. So today when cargo gets transported around the world, you literally stick it on the thing. And pray. And pray. You have no clue whatsoever what's going to happen between points A and B, whether it's going to get to your point, too hot, too cold, if it's going to get knocked, if someone's going to open it, and all the rest of it. A little bit like using Royal Mail. <laughs> <laughs> but but it, it does amaze me to this day. I've never heard the phrase before. Actually, it's, it's, it's spot on because the things that we should know that you think would be obvious that we simply don't know about the cargo, its condition, its location, where it is um, – what it's being surrounded by that might then influence what's in there if it was a smell. I mean, it's just unbelievable. And for any of those geeky people out there, there was a really cool documentary on BBC the other day about DHL and how some guy in uh, Australia, some um, remote village, ordered a, a T-shirt from Gymshark in the UK and 72 hours later, 9,000 miles, four flights, the logistics from one to the other was fascinating. But how did they, I mean... Why is that not trackable if you're chipping at great big chunks of cargo around the world? I just don't think that the technology has been mature enough or cheap enough, actually, considering the, the value of the car- sum of the cargoes. So some of the equipment that that's, it, that's out there at the moment is, I think, something like $80 for one sensor that only monitors humidity. And only one box of however many Thousands shipping containers boxes, yeah, you've yeah. got on a... So, so if yeah. you think about how much it costs to transport the cargo and you start adding $80 on, it doesn't make it economic. 
So, this is why InsureWave is transformational because there's still the number of ships that um, come into port and dock and they have to then hand over the physical dockets. Mm-hmm. You yeah. think, my, what, what era are we living in sometimes? It's like, this is ridiculous. And probably in triplicate and... Uh, several faxes and what have you it's later. Like, it's all like letters of credit, isn't it? Um, but, but just, I just it, wanted to to move the conversation on a little bit because we're kind of already getting into it, but I want to make it more explicit. So sort of what, what technologies are you most excited about given what you've already learned? So you've, you've done some work with blockchain and presumably you're, you're still working on that project and you're still looking to, to scale it. What else is exciting you right now? What, what, what would you want to add into that? You know, new technologies? And So I think, I, I mean, in and of themselves, the techs are really exciting. Mm-hmm. But actually, I think the excitement is going to be when you converge the techs. So we've, in blockchain, we converged with uh, the IoT sensors, the GPS sensors. If you converge IoT with AI, because the the quantum of data you're getting through these IoT sensors, no single human being could ever read or even wish to read or, or analyze because it's yeah. just too too huge and, and constantly coming at you. So when you converge the text, I think that's when you're really going to get the power of them. Um, and that's why some of the experiments that we're now looking at are ecosystems. So we are playing with multiple partners and multiple technologies and experimenting on how you can even create this ecosystem because it is complex because you're bringing as I say, all these different parties together and you have to think about, well, what does that mean? Even from an NDA perspective, what yeah. does that mean from a contractual perspective? Or IP, who owns the IP at the end of it if you're bringing these things Absolutely. together? The, the, the point Sarah made though, and, I, and I, you and I have had a, a public little challenge online about this one, um, was scale because I get I got given out to or commended by Robin Mertens from Instec London when I said the predictions for the year ahead are, or I didn't actually mention blockchain at all in insurance. Yeah, and I saw that. Twice yeah. in a row. <laughs> And I think your comment was, that sounds like a challenge. And it's not that I don't believe in it. I just don't think it's ready for prime time just yet. And I'm sure I'm going to be wrong at some point, but maybe it's not 2019. I think to Sarah's point is, how does InsureWave go from proof of concept that's been hugely successful and won tons of awards? So, you know, huge kudos for getting there, getting out there and getting it done. How do we now make it the default for the industry to adopt going forward? Because I think it's bloody hard. It is really, really hard. But what actually we're seeing across multiple technologies is insurance companies working directly with clients. So where we may have been on a journey where we're testing some technologies and all the rest of it, in order for it to become really scalable in the way in which we've used blockchain, you have to get clients to come on board as well, which means they have to change their way of operating even just learning what the what on earth blockchain is, it's a journey for them to go on, for them to come on board. But the benefits, I mean, the benefits are clear. Do they care? Do they care if it's blockchain or chain block or whatever you want to call it? Do they really they care? They shouldn't and- care, actually. Right. It should be, we should almost drop the word blockchain because actually it's just a mechanism to share data with your insurance company more quickly. Um, you get, you know, we've got to learn how to price real-time data as an industry and all the rest of it. But it should you be, be the mechanism by which you share data with your insurance. The best mechanism. If it happens to be blockchain, it happens to be blockchain. 
Um, I'm going to move on to the news shortly, but I just wanted to ask if there's any um, projects you're working on. You mentioned a couple there. Are there any you want to give us any more detail on? Are there any exciting projects that are in the works that we should we should keep an eye out? <laughs> top secret ones, you mean? No. Um, <laughs> well, if they're top secret, they're top secret. But if you don't ask, you don't get. That so. is very true. So I think the, probably the, the, the one that is most fresh at the moment in terms of what we're working on is a construction ecosystem. Um, and we're looking at how can we solve for some of the industry problems such as um, safety on construction sites, things like concrete cracking, um, even just surveys around a construction site, which is notoriously unsafe because obviously it's in the process of being built, right? Sounds like a job for a drone to me. <laughs> yeah, so we're looking at different ways of, of imaging, um, different ways of putting sensors in buildings um, and also on the on the human beings. To, But actually what what is the exciting thing about that is it's all about safety. It's all about better risk management. And it's got quite a glorious goal that actually it's about making the world safer. That's, you know, insurance is no longer about you just pay a claim and it shouldn't really be it's about paying It's true risk claim. management, right? It is risk management. And it's that prevention rather than cure. To, yeah, it's payer to partner, isn't it? Look at that tie back straight into corporate. <laughs> See, I, corporate I like what you <laughs> But things like workers' compensation are just going to get safer and safer and safer. And many insurers, uh, AIG acquired a company a while back for making... Uh, individuals that attend sites, whatever else, just become more aware of their environment that they're in and ultimately be safer. I mean, it's, you look at things like the fire brigade and that sort of stuff. All the, uh, all the firefighters these days will have sensors to know where each person is and they're accounted in and they're accounted back out again. So those sorts of things you think are really obvious, but they're now becoming mainstream and easy to get to, right? Well, it's, it's the trend across all of insurance is all insurers are trying to move away from this idea. You pay us money. We never pay you back. It's just that we you know you, the resentment that every, Every insurer in whatever area faces to a certain extent. It's if we can if we can stop that happening, then you know you like us all the more, and actually it's better for everybody. But nobody wants to have an injury. Nobody wants no. to have something debilitating that happens in their life. They want to be able to go to work, be safe, and then come home again at the end of the day. It's why I still think one of the biggest areas to go after is health, because all this stuff will be prevented. Then the health piece will be actually how do we inform the individual to be better going forward, or the group of individuals to uh, be better, especially to get into things like aging life and all that sort of good stuff. <laughs> We're not going to go into that now, no, though, not Nigel. Yet. Not again. <laughs> we, don't, we don't want to fall down that rabbit hole. I am going to move us on to the news. Um, so we have a few stories we want to chat about today. The first one is Trove expanding to four more states in the US. So this is really interesting. We talk about Trove a bit. Um, the, the US founders, um, it's an on-demand insurance platform, but they launched in the UK and Australia before they launched in their home market, which was largely due to the fact they wanted to get licenses in every state before they started launching. Um, so they had launched in Arizona in March of last year, but they've now sort of done more of a push into Delaware, Nevada, North, uh, South Dakota rather, and Wyoming. Um, for me, the interesting story here is is the geography and the, the difficulty of being an insure tech and trying to operate either in the US or across across multiple geographies. Um, and I think you know we see this quite a lot with startups. And I think Trove is an interesting example who decided to go go where it was easier and come back to where it's hard. Completely agree. I mean, the, I, I'm a big fan of Scott and uh, Mark and the team over there. Um, I, I love what they do. They, they, Everyone's talked about this on-demand, switch-on, switch-off all the time. I think these are one of the first people out there that have actually got capability, product, platform, live in markets, live in the UK with Axis, live in um, Australia with Suncor, and then in the US, it's uh, Munich Re from memory. Um, but uh, just on that point, though, okay, a startup might have difficulty getting into all of these regulatory environments in a state-by-state. 
but so, so do, do incumbents, yeah? yeah? And we have big teams of people that deal with this for us. I think that's the difference, I guess, because I was going to yeah. ask you about the Maersk. I mean, it's shipping. So, of course, it's global. Of course, it's, you know, different geographies. But I guess I guess that's the key is that, you know, certainly with the size of the organization you're now within, they have the resources to put behind ensuring Absolutely. compliance. Yes. Somebody like Trove, who has, you know, I don't know how many people they have now, but far fewer. It's the, it's... It's not the it's not a different problem. It's a, but a different way of solving it. But what I'd really like to see is that companies of both sizes could do it with two people. Like one of my other loves is Regtech, um, and I think it's a big burgeoning area, isn't it? Yeah. Because these are again they're complex problems, and sometimes you do need to step out of an incumbent or what have you to be able to have the nimble ability to solve this problem to then come back to the incumbent market and try and solve it, so that then it's for the for the good of everybody. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm impressed by Trove's um, approach to it. But as I said, my, my, what I'd really like to see is actually just to be easier and for them not to have had to do that. But equally, if you go back to what um, Tim Attia said from Slices, uh, Tim was on a, a previous episode, they're available now in pretty much every single state that's out there. They've also launched now in the UK. That's hard, right? To your point from incumbents as well. So is it the the fact that they've just got a platform that makes it easier to get there. So are they shortcutting the things that you have to do as an incumbent to make life easier? I don't know, but um, hats off to them. Big fan of Trove. I'd love to see it be more successful. Yeah, and I think they will be. They're moving into other areas, aren't they? So they're doing more in mobility now, which is an interesting one. So what they've done, they start off with consumer electronics, but they're moving into, they've got a partnership with Waymo and they've said they're going to do more in mobility, which makes sense in the US because they've got a hell of a lot more cars than they have in both Australia and the UK. But if you think about it, if, if think about the fact you can turn things on and off either manually. What happens when you get to turn it on and off automatically when you get into self-driving mode versus non-self-driving mode? I think Metromar had a go at that previously, actually. So it's definitely an opportunity. But it's going to be interesting to see whether they're profitable, though, because, mm. you know, insurance is traditionally a pooling arrangement. You know, the, the premiums of the many pay for the losses of the few. But if you then don't get that pooled, I know it's an obvious thing to say, actually, are these startups going to be able to make money? Well, that that is that is the golden question. I mean, we've talked about it before on the show that most of them to date are being bankrolled by their, their big partners. So the Munich Re is putting a lot of money. I mean, this is, you know, they won't we know them quite well, they won't mind me saying this, they're putting a lot of money behind absorbing the losses that some other startups they're backing because they want to see how it works. Um, whether that's sustainable long-term remains to be seen. But um, I think it'd be interesting if you, just going back to the sort of sensor, if you can if you can monitor things in a different way to prevent loss. So again, it's using multiple solutions to try and solve a problem rather than maybe one. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, again, as techs converge over time, I think that might be quite an interesting development. I mean, I've used these guys in the past personally for holidays and stuff. If you want to, if you want to cover camera kit or whatever else you, you're taking on holiday with you, it's so simple to go search for your item. I've got this, switch on, and you get a reminder when you come home to go switch it back off again. It's perfect. It's so simple. I don't know why more people don't do it. Well, they've <laughs> certainly cracked the customer experience, which yes. I think incumbents could learn a lot from. Yes. But that means it's, that's interesting because it's repeatable, right? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, I'm going to move us from the US to Asia. Um, the next story is from TechCrunch, and it's that Singapore Life has raised $33 million for expansion into Southeast Asia. So it raised the money from two sources, $20 million from Aflac Investment. Um, that was at the end of last year. And then a further $13 million this week from Aberdeen Standard Investments. Um, total raise to date is $97 million, which isn't bad, like especially considering it had a $50 million Series A. Um, it's, it's, it is, it sounds so blasé. It's your standard 100% digital life insurance firm, which we've talked about, you know, many of these on the show. Um, what's interesting about this one, I think, is that it's licensed in Singapore, which we know is quite innovative when it comes to licensing all sorts of startups, particularly insurance. Um, 
and it's looking to expand out of Singapore into other Southeast Asian countries, although it hasn't um, you know, specified which particular countries it's going into. And then at the same time, another story that came in just afterwards um, was about Zhong and Partner and Grab. Again, so Zhong An is a Chinese organization. Grab is big in Singapore and Grab is now going to have an insurance platform across Southeast Asia. Um, so they're creating a new distribution, uh, a new ch- distribution channel there through, for those who don't know, Grab is actually quite like Uber. So they started off just being cars, then they became like delivery. And now they want to do remittances, healthcare and insurance this year. So they're jumping quite a few steps it's scary though um, the size of these things the size of the opportunity in these markets i mean they talk about 600 million people in a digital only environment for me that's phenomenal because you've we've not got the legacy of an incumbent to sit there and go well actually we've got 35 let's be honest we've got 135 platforms to get through all this sort of process we can't get to market quickly we've got a brand new digital insurer that's un- unencumbered by legacy with a massive market opportunity number one uh, and number two the thing that is Continuing to surprise because I think life was a slow second or third place. Life insurance seems to be picking up time and time again, specifically in the East. Yeah, I, I think the two things for me are, are, are the region. It's just, you know, both those stories come out together. It's clearly, I mean, it's obviously a big market for just about everything, you know, consumer goods, insurance, ma- uh, you know, wealth management, all those things. But the, the amount of money being raised to go after the market size, it's just, it, it's of a scale that is very hard for certainly those of us in Europe to comprehend, I think. Um, and I think the life insurance point, life and health insurance, but I think for those, I think for me, the interesting there is that those are markets that previously haven't purchased those products because the people, A, haven't had access or B, the money. And now I think that's a, there's, there's a different dynamic again, going back to the people. Mm-hmm. So nearly everybody has a mobile phone. So the digital distribution channels are there. Yeah. Whereas that's not the case in Europe. Absolutely. So we can really go after a, a huge swathe of people really quickly, really, really easy at the speed of just a downloading of an app. And the, and the thing, again, just to completely build on that point, is that um, there are so many dominant apps. So if I pull up my phone, I've probably got 12 apps on my home screen and I'll probably have three the same as each of you. But we probably, you know, the one we might all have might be WhatsApp. But, you know... Outside of that, there's probably not that we have in common. If you go to Singapore, everybody has Grab. And it's the same when you look to China. Everybody's got Alipay. So it is, or WeChat or, or wherever else, right? Yeah, but, but it's, it's the ubiquity of that one app. And it's that kind of glorious, perfect storm of we've got money, we've got people who want it, we've got a product to sell, and we've got the perfect distribution channel. Sounds easy, right? Oh, yeah. I don't know why they haven't done it before now. I mean, it's only 600 million people. What, but, but what are we waiting for? But it's really why haven't they done it before? What stopped people going, let's just go after this in a new way? I don't think people have had the money to buy insurance. I think there's a big thing about the Southeast Asian market in that there's an understanding of insurance. Because we've spoken to, um, oh my goodness, it's gone Policy Bazaar, the Indian yes, health insurance yeah, yeah, company. Yeah, yeah. We've spoken to them a couple of times. And what they've said is that it just people... A, there hasn't been, so they haven't been able to put the pieces together. B, people just haven't had the money to buy it. And now more people have more money to purchase these things. And also the understanding of insurance as well is becoming more widespread. So I think there is a consumer element to it as well. Um, That's really interesting considering the kind of the global problem of underinsurance or, uh, you know, inadequate insurance for the things that you have. So it would be interesting to observe how they did that kind of education, for want of a better word, and learning on actually you do need insurance because Mm. there's there's the ubiquity, but there's also the disposability, you know. So if your camera, your phone… And the profitability as well, because, you know, again, this is very 
very boring story, but like if previously you were AXA and you were trying to tell in, uh, sell insurance to however many people there are in India and each of those people only earned the equivalent of, and it, it is sadly pennies in, in many cases, then they weren't worth you going after. But if you've got an entirely digital infrastructure, your distribution channel is already in place because they've got a phone and an app, all of a sudden you're like, hello, maybe I could make some money in this market. But you've always got to break it down as a difference. I was with a guy for breakfast the other day talking about insurance. Funny that. You talk about insurance like breakfast. It was, it was another guy. Uh, 24-7. Uh, <laughs> I know, rock and roll, right? But it was, uh, it was one of the guys that's taking part in the SBC collab this year uh, in from the States. And he was saying, uh, he said, I work in insurance. I'm overinsured. Of course I am. I think that was a really interesting comment to make. And then you flip to the other side of it and go, what are we doing in the microinsurance space? It's actually enabling stuff for the people that earn a dollar or $4 a month that can have the ability to buy crop insurance that allows them to go and, you know, feed the family and then make it, make a living going forward. So there's a, there's a massive spectrum here. And I think we all too often focus on the developed or developing areas without looking at the other end of the scale as well. Yeah. And I'd, I'd, I'd react a little bit to kind of, oh, that's a market to go after from a financial perspective. I think there is much more goodwill with an insurance company from a, you know, social responsibility perspective. Mm-hmm. Actually, we don't want people to be, you know, as affected because, you know, if they're not insured and they lose their livelihood, that's it. They've got no way of getting restitution to, to recover from that and, and move forward. And there are so many areas around the world. And, it, you know, even in North America, we've seen with the recent hurricanes, people didn't buy flood insurance and therefore can't rebuild their homes. We've got to be able to do something about that as an industry. So it's not about just getting the premium. It's about I think it has supporting to, yeah. structures and, and the economy. And it's a, it's a much bigger thing than just the premium. Sorry, my, my point was because I, I would often speak to people um, at, to who would say, well, you know, it's, it's, it's not a gesture of goodwill. But I think if you want to continue doing that and supporting the, you know, um, the economies and the communities, you do have to make some money from it to be able to continue doing it. So if it's an entire loss leader, would you do you think insurers would do it if they just lost money hand over fist? I think it's a good question, but I think there's a you've got to experiment and you've got to do these things to, to learn. But yeah. there's a there's a bigger fundamental role of insurance, I think, in, in society and in the in the economy. And if we talk about startups and then willing to bankroll losses, mm-hmm. why is that different to going into emerging markets and willing to bankroll the losses because of the greater good of, of moving society, technology, whatever it is forward? Yeah, and, and I don't I don't disagree that that is a motive as well. It's it's an interesting balance that has to be struck, I think, because, you know, even charities have to make some money, I suppose, um, was, was my thinking. But um but we'll just, I'll just move us on to our, we'll just take us back to the States for a little bit um, for our final story, which is uh, from Insurance Business Magazine. And it's that Zurich North America has become the first uh, arm to choose its representatives for the Zurich Innovation World Championship. <laughs> and every time I talk about this, I think about the World Cup because somebody explained to me that that's how the rounds work. Um, that was Mark, wasn't it? it was definitely yeah, Mark, Mark, Mark Bud from, from Zurich, yes. Um, so we talked about this initiative way back on uh, episode 24. Um, I just wanted to note that, that North America has has become first, as I said, to choose its two um, startups. One is a Toronto-based Chisel, um, which op- offers AI solutions for the global insurance industry, which sounds suitably vague. I'm sure we'll get more detail <laughs> in due course. Um, and the other is California-based Zesty.ai. So more AI. Um, this one focused on property analytics. Um, so we're still waiting for um, insurtechs from Latin America, Asia Pacific, Europe, uh, well, EMEA, Europe, Middle East and Asia uh, and Africa. Um, I I just I just like this competition. Like I think, Why? Be- I think it's because it's a different, not a different. Well, it's a different way of doing innovation. But I think it's the way 
no, sorry, it's not a different way of doing innovation. It's a different way of presenting your accelerator or your innovation hub. Um, I quite like the game element, I think. And I agree. I like like the competition side of it. I like the... I like the fact that it's global and they're a, global, a huge global insurer. So they've been able to go across the world to Latin America, all, all over the place and go, give me the best of the best. But if you go to an insurtech and ask them what they want, they want access to the people that can make decisions as quickly as possible to get me in and get me working. So you could argue this is a drawn out, pro, and I'm, I'm a fan of Mark and the competition. So this is, this is not a dig. This is more of a if I was in InsurTech and I speak to them all the time, they want, get me up and running, get me to do a proof of concept and let me prove to you that we've got a way of shortcutting or improving the value to your customer that you have. I, I completely agree. And I think a lot of startups are badly served because the companies they're trying to work with draw out the process for so long that the companies run out of resources in, you know, in the interim. But, um, and, and I, I just think that I like the idea that we've seen so many innovation hubs and we've seen so many accelerators and, Maybe this is just a different way of marketing that. But I think and if this we have fast to... tracks it past the accelerator or the hub into production, I'm all for it. If this yeah. is a funnel into the lab, then we're all doomed. <laughs> I, I, I will accept that. Um, I was going to say it slightly differently, but um, I yes, my my point was that we have to stop just messing around with different terms here and actually work out what insurers are trying to do. And uh, Because what they want to do, right, is when they're working these startups, as you said, they want to find the best people, the fastest way to solve problems and get things up and running. But what they've done, though, is they've gone about it from a solution angle, though, haven't they? They've gone out and looked for solutions. Yes. It'd be interesting to see whether they've gone out within their own businesses and said, okay, what is it that's driving you nuts? What can't you do that you really need to be able to do? And then say, these are solutions or, or, or types f- of startups we want to work with. Or, fi- or flip it. And Arsene's been on this show a few times and he's talked about the four or five categories that they're going after, number one. But equally, not what problems you have today, but where do we think our market's going to go that we can start to address with new things that we don't do today? And I think that's quite interesting. Yeah, and I think Arsene, we, we have asked him about this before and he said that they do, they had set a set of problems okay. before yeah, they went a, out there. There's a delicate balance between bringing solutions, looking for a problem, which are very rarely successful and happen so often in blockchain actually yeah i was going to say but i thought i'm not going to upset helen again <laughs> no, no no i i wasn't i wasn't saying that was what you had done i was just saying that it does happen generally quite a lot oh there's lots of, yeah there's lots of press on yeah blockchain is is a tech looking for a yeah At the moment, a problem until it becomes table stakes and everyone's got it because that's just the new way of doing it yeah. obviously we didn't do it that way but you know <laughs> yeah i mean i think that the uh, the goal is that every time a company does something like this they learn a way to make it smoother better for everybody involved and i think one of my big things about innovation hubs accelerators whatever you want to call them is you have to have some measure of their effectiveness you can't just do it for the press but what's impressive is just the fact that they've put time behind it resources they've got it global so so there is a you know innovation theater is a real thing and it's really important to do because it just makes people pay attention which then to your point makes it easier to actually execute Uh, my comment and i hear you guys on fintech insiders talk about innovation theater all the time and slate it I, I'm with you on it because I think if, as long as Innovation Theatre is a ticket to the show as opposed to a ticket to the queue, then it has its benefits, if that, if that makes sense. I, as I, said, I love the competition. I love the fact it's global. The key now is how do we get them in there and bypass all the processes that had to go through previously to prove that these things will actually work? 
the the same guys having breakfast with actually we were talking about how insurtechs in general have matured as have fintechs and now the insurtechs in lots of cases are pushing back and going we don't want to come and join your competition we don't want to come and do your your accelerator Mr. We've James got- York is Mr. James York who's a friend of the show is, is often um, quite vocal on that uh, Worry and Peace will be all over that with James <laughs> uh, and I think I think it's true I think it's a fair point to say guys we've been around for three or four years we've proven ourselves don't treat me in the same way that you would if you had an idea versus a product or something that's actually proven in the market as opposed to scaled in the market yeah and and I think we well, I mean I'm sure we can go and speak to Mark and I'm sure he'll explain it to us in detail but this is one that I want to keep an eye on because it has gone so much attention and is so global so let's look back in a year's time it. and go show me the winner and show me how they're now live in 20 countries because no, not is that any your other, challenge to Mark? Yeah, that's his countries. challenge. <laughs> Mine's blockchain, is his that? <laughs> All right, there you go. We, we, it's early, it's January, we've set down, you know, you've got 12 months, guys. But no one else can do it. No one else. Very few carriers can do it. Yeah. And if any of them can, it's the big globals, it's the Axor Excels, it's the Zurix, it's the Alliances that have the scope and capability to do it. So massive opportunity. All right, well, let's keep an eye on it. Um, that wraps up the news section and that wraps up today's show. So thank you very much for joining me. Um, where can our listeners find out more about you, Helen? Do you have a Twitter account? I like do have a Twitter account, yeah. And, and Nigel and I converse very often on it. Quite a shy reserved as always, right? Yeah. Where can people find this? It's at, very excitingly at Helen Stanway. That's very imaginative. And obviously on LinkedIn as well. Perfect. Nigel? Equally as creative at Nigel Walsh. And I'm at Sarah Kachansky. You know, it's quite nice to have people's names. When I host Fintech Insider, some other things that the boys give me for ways to contact them are. But this is the whole debate about. And- this is the whole the whole debate about should you have your real ID or non real ID? And I'm like, I'm me. I'm me online versus me offline. So just be me, <laughs> not be me. But you know what I mean. And with that note, somebody's stealing Nigel Walsh's identity as I speak. That wraps up another InsureTech Insider. Thank you very much, Helen, for joining us. It's a pleasure. Um, and as always, you can find the show on Twitter at InsureTech Insiders. And if you like what you've heard this week, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. And please, please leave us a review on iTunes. If you have any suggestions or feedback, please reach out on Twitter or email podcasts at 11fs.com. <laughs>